and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny, and with me as always is my co-host Nick. Hello! Thank you for joining us again today for another conversation about some of our favourite films. Give us a follow on Twitter at Kinotomic, send us an email at kinotomic at gmail.com and tell us what your favourite Steven Spielberg film is. Yes, we've got Spielberg on the show tonight. Yay! We've somehow managed to find two films of, of his that are relatively unknown to to me and Nick. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm quite, I'm honestly quite surprised in myself that um, when I was looking at, I think the reason why we ended up going with Spielberg, I think, was because when we had our conversation about ET. It was either during that episode recording or after, like, you mentioned you'd never seen Close Encounters. And um, when we were talking about doing this director December, it was like a case of, okay, you haven't seen Close Encounters, what Spielberg films haven't I seen? And there's, like, a choice of, like, three. Um, so we've gone with we've gone with The Colour Purple. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, should we start with the older one, which for a second yeah. week in a row is one of Nick's um, picks, Close Encounters, yeah. 1977, right? Yeah, Close Encounters, The Third Kind, 1977, um, which is, of course, the same year that George Lucas released Star Wars. Um, this film stars uh, Richard Dreyfuss, um, Francois Truffaut, Terry Garr, um, Melinda Dillon, among uh, many others. Um, got a brief synopsis. It's kind of really hard to kind of find a synopsis to do with this film because it's quite a simple plot, but there's a lot in there. Um, Roy Neary, uh, played by Richard Dreyfus, an electric lineman, watches how his quiet and ordinary daily life turns upside down after a close encounter with a UFO. Um, so yeah, this, this was Spielberg's film following, uh, following Jaws. Um, so Danny, what did you think of Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Yeah, I think the reason I steered clear of this film for so long, um, is just because I'm not massively into stories of extraterrestrial beings and encounters and after having seen Arrival I think everything else pales by comparison. I'm not saying it felt a bit dated but it did feel a bit dated. Um, it's still it's still Spielberg so it's it the special effects were spectacular and you know when you're watching it you know you're watching a master at, at work you know he's quite genius he's 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 done really good good job and i mean you said it follows jaws i don't think it is as good as jaws but it definitely keeps you entertaining keeps you interested up until the end great direction aside i felt like 70 or like 80 percent of the movie was just images of panning of crowds of people staring at all in at the sky it was just like and the music you know 
it was so funny it's like everything else you do is like and i feel like i've seen it before because i've i've, I've seen at least one scene where everyone's like looking in awe at the sky <laughs> and i found it i found it good i mean you know you can't you can't say it's not good i found it quite funny at times i mean roy's whole meltdown was ridiculous it was it could it would have been probably more hilarious if it hadn't been for you know him having a family and you know just choosing to go down the the, the crazy route to say just like you know families like deal with it and he can't really deal with it can he no um so and then i don't know i, I didn't blame the wife for leaving him to be fair because he was just basically super insane at that point and i thought that was quite funny it would have been even funnier if if the if the kids were not part of the equation because i think that's quite a bit stressful for them to see the father sort of <laughs> getting all the plants from outside of the house inside the house for some reason um yeah Truffaut was adorable as usual i always find him adorable he's just a bit like a security blanket for me and this was just, you know, playing himself. I don't think you had anything else to expect from him. Um, it just felt... I enjoyed it. I saw the... I think, was it the extended version? I saw the two-hour version. It's the special... So we watched the um, special edition, or the collector's edition, as it's called, um, because there are three different versions of the film. Um, okay. The theatrical, the directors, which came out in 1980. And then the uh, collector's edition, which came out uh, in 1998. Um, okay. It's the one that we're watching. We watched. Okay, cool. It just, for me, it felt like it, it did what it said on the tin. You know, it was a two-hour movie about alien um, sort of beings visiting the Earth. Uh, I must say, I just really, really loved the little kid's performance. It was It was so adorable he was simply just stunning and every moment he wasn't on screen it was I felt like it was a moment wasted and I'm glad that Spielberg saw how cool it would be to make a movie about a kid and an alien who become friends and I somehow feel that she could have he could have probably cast um was it named Carrie Guffey in E.T. I'm not saying that the kids in E.T. didn't perform marvelously because they did um and i i I actually liked et much better than this i'm afraid it was it was a good film all in all but it's no it's no et and it's not draws and it's definitely not arrival um but yeah it was it was fun okay i mean yeah you kind of hit the nail on the head really this this kind of is a story about a man that is having a nervous breakdown as his life falls apart. Um, you know, and his, the wife and kids leave and he goes off and has a midlife crisis. It's kind of kind of like the simplest way of kind of describing the film. Um, Spielberg has come out, um, he, has, he has come out later on in, in his life. I think in 2005, I think he said this, where he said that he, after him himself had had children, he would never have he if he'd have made the film now he wouldn't have Roy leave his family and go and join 
yeah join the go on the spaceship at the end because that was just um, like what are you doing what what about your kids it always just felt a bit like out of place you know i think it's like more to do with the fact that roy is looking he just wants answers he just wants uh, uh you know it's this thing has happened to him and he just wants answers and when he you know he's in that scene in that you know the little room with him and uh, Truffaut and, and yeah. the translator, and he's he's and he's just saying he's just like seriously. I just all I want is an answer. And when they start describing, you know, his symptoms, you know, the the headaches and the the nausea and 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 all that, you know, and he's like, yeah, I do. And and he gets these visions of of Devil's Tower, and you get that amazing line where he's like, yeah, I just I have one just like it in my living room. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was um, funny. You know, he it's he just wants an he just wants answers. And I think at the end where you know, you, you have the build-up of all these, you know, the trained astronauts are very cold and they have no personality. And there's a reason why Roy has been chosen is because he has had this connection to to it. Um, okay, I, think, I did not I get that. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's why, because that, it wasn't a case of, like, he chose to go aboard. He chose to be there at that point. But it was like that the aliens could have quite easily have chosen one of the cold people, but they didn't have a connection to being there at that time. Um, okay. It's about like finding meaning. It just it just appeared to me it was what I thought was like he's basically been slightly affected mentally by what he saw the first night, and he just couldn't let it go, and he drove it drove him to obsession to the point where life on earth had no meaning for him anymore yeah i mean i uh, i'm not sure about i think the motivation was slightly weak to be fair i mean we we see we see other people being there like you know these other people have made it to devil's tower and yeah but jillian was the one was there because her kid had been kidnapped but she had no but she had a connection to devil's tower as well she was drawing that image yeah she was she was she was drawing that image as well she had the visions and you know we see the we see the old bloke who you know has that crazy story about bigfoot in that meeting and you know he's there and and those kids and you know it's i think it's all about trying to find answers and trying to find meaning um i i think there's a very I mean, like looking on this view, I think there is a kind of a, a spiritual, look, you know, reading of the film. You know, trying to find meaning in a world where your life is kind of falling apart, maybe. Um, but that's you know maybe a conversation for another day. Um, uh, I mean, I I've got some I've got some behind the scenes stuff, but you're more than um jump in if you if you if you have any other thoughts. Okay. Um. So uh, Douglas Trumbull, um, who was an American film director and special effects supervisor, um, he was the special effects supervisor on 2001, um, Star Trek, the motion picture, and Blade Runner, um, as well as uh, the director of a science fiction film called uh, Silent Running, which in my opinion is one of the best science fiction films ever made, ruined by a terrible soundtrack. Um, that he uh, was the um, special effects supervisor for Close Encounters um, and there was a person that worked with him on Close Encounters 
who had just come off of um, production on Star Wars. Um, this is obviously before Star Wars became the juggernaut that it was, and I'll get into that in a minute. Um, I can't remember the name of the, the, the guy, the, the special effects guy, but he added, uh, as a little in-joke to himself almost, he added uh, a miniature R2-D2 on the underside of the mothership. Um, and I don't, did you, I don't know if you saw that. No. Um, no. Uh, it's one of those things that was pointed out to me by my mum when I first saw the film, and every time I see that image of the mothership coming over, I always see R2-D2 without fail. No, I didn't get um, to that. Uh, John Williams' score, I think, is actually astonishing. Um, I think it's quite amazing how good he he kind of includes. He incorporates the the "Wish You Upon a Star" motif from Pinocchio in with the you know the five tones. Um, it's just I I think it is one. I think it's one of the best science fiction scores. It's and that the musical like symphony translation scene at the end to the the talking scene is so playful um and just it just uh, makes me feel so warm inside when i see it um i think his score is one of the is one of the main reasons why the film works so well um and you can say that quite a lot about spielberg's films you know if it wasn't for john williams score would you really have the connection to et that you would have had probably not yeah i think i read somewhere that um he edited the this film Close Encounters after Williams composed the score, so t- to fit in with the score. All right, I wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. I think I read that somewhere, and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. It does. It does. Um, the film um, had a production budget of uh, nineteen point four million dollars. Um, which was quite a lot at the time um, when he actually pitched the project to um, Columbia. I think the budget he gave them initially was like two to three million dollars, um, <laughs> and then um, yeah, he kept, he kept adding things, and the and the budget just kept going. <laughs> and after you know the the nightmares of shooting that he had on Jaws. Um, he, you know, obviously he, he just wanted a simple project after Jaws and but Close Encounters in, in Spielberg's words was probably more arduous shoot than it was Jaws um, but the film, like Jaws was a massive success it, 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 you know, obviously not to that level but it, it grossed three, over $300 million worldwide um, and it's widely considered one of the greatest science fiction films ever made Um uh, some like some movie directors have actually said that uh, cited that it's one of their favorite films. Um, some uh, names being uh, Stanley Kubrick has come out and said that Edgar Wright, Spike Lee, uh, Denis Villeneuve, um, who directed Arrival, and uh, Pixar's Andrew Stanton. Um, so that's I think it's quite quite cool that Kubrick likes this film so much or liked this film so much. Um, like I said, there are three versions of the film. Um, the version that we saw was the collector's edition, which came out in 1998, um, which is kind of like an amalgamation of the director's version that he did in 1980, where he wanted to kind of add a few bits into the film, and Columbia would let him do it if only they, they needed something to kind of hook the, the, the marketing on, which is why um, that version of the film has the inside the mothership ending um which i really don't like 
because it totally just takes ruins, you away from it the ru- mystery. Yeah, it just it ruins does. the mystery, doesn't it? Um, you don't need to see inside the mothership. Yeah, I mean, in that edition as well, we got the we got the the the, the one of my favorite scenes, which is the Cotopaxi ship in in the Mongolian desert, which is such an incredible image. Um, and uh, yeah, but then and then he came back in 1998 and was like he wasn't happy with that version, and he just removed that inside the mothership, but added uh, kept some of the other bits that he liked, uh, which is the version that we uh, we saw. Um, for the role of uh, Roy, um, Steve McQueen was actually Spielberg's first choice for the film. Um, um, McQueen himself, I mean, he liked the script apparently, but he didn't feel he was right. Not he wasn't right for the role because he was unable to cry on cue. Um, actors that turned down the role were Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, and Gene Hackman. Um, Jack Nicholson turned down the role because of scheduling conflicts. I don't know what that performance would have been like. Um, Probably crazier. Yeah, I think a little bit more unhinged. Um, And then, so Spielberg kind of explained when he was filming Draws that um, Dreyfus talked me into casting him. He listened to about 155 days worth of Close Encounters. He even contributed ideas. Um, And then Dreyfus has come come out and said, um, I launched myself into a campaign to get the part. I would walk by Steve office and say stuff like, Al Pacino has no sense of humour, or Jack Nicholson is too crazy. I eventually convinced him to cast me. Um, <laughs> which I think is quite... It's, it's a perfectly... I can imagine him it. lurking like, outside his office going, got a minute? Have you been thinking about it? <laughs> Al Pacino said um, no, didn't he? Sorry? Al Pacino said no, didn't he? Al Pacino, yeah, yeah. It's, it, I, I, I can see Dreyfus doing that. He has that yeah. um, personality about him. Edgy. Yeah. Um, so this was um, Truffaut's only acting role in a film he didn't direct, as well as his only role in an English language film. Um, I'm sure Danny knew that, but uh, I did. You, know, you listen, I did. listeners might not know that. Um, so during filming, Truffaut used his free time to write the script for The Man Who Loved Women. Um, he also worked on a novel called The Actor. Um, which is one of the reasons why he accepted the part, but it was a project that he, he eventually abandoned. Um, he was based on his character was based on the uh, his character of Lacombe was based on a guy um, called oh god I can't find that now. Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to edit this. Hang on, I had it written down. That's really annoying. Oh yeah. Um, so the part the part of uh, Claude Lacombe um, was uh, based on French UFO exec- uh, expert uh, Jacques uh, Vallée. Um, I think that's kind of how you say his name. Um, so it kind of it. I got some quotes on on how um, on on Truffaut, like kind of like behind the scenes film, uh, stuff on on Truffaut and on Close Encounters. Um, so Dreyfus claimed he never kind of got past the whole starstruck stage with Truffaut um, and uh, Spielberg had said that uh, 
you know, truth, um, you know, Truffaut likes to act. Uh, he says um, he likes to be himself. He doesn't like to act in that sense. I don't think he ever played a character in any of his films, but he's a very good enthusiast of his own personality, which is all I wanted. I cast him because of his good interviews and how I saw him in Day for Night and how I saw him in Wild Child. Um, there were several things where he made suggestions that I used, little touches here and there, Truffaut-esque touches. Truffaut asked me to show him off-camera how I wanted him to behave. I stood in front of the camera and Truffaut watched me, and as I act out his part, he imitated me by every facial move. When I saw the dailies the next day, I realised what a bad actor I would. I just wouldn't do that anymore. So, just, it's quite funny. Um... The so the link that I um I kind of alluded to earlier with with um Star Wars, um so Lucas and, and Spielberg were, were were good friends, um, and so at the time in 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 seventy seven before Close Encounters and and, and um, Star Wars were were released, um they kind of had this little wager, um so Lucas he kind of thought that his move his Star Wars wouldn't make back its budget. Um, I think it was his attitude was more because of 20th Century Fox's attitude towards the film. 20th Century Fox very famously just giving Lucas the marketing rights, um, which is how Lucas pretty much made his money. Um, basically, they they agreed to give each other 2.5 percent of the profits of their respective films. Um, Lucas grossly underestimated his own movie. Uh, which ended up becoming one of the highest grossing films of all time. Um, which I think kind of, yeah, I think that's quite, so, but a, quite does a that, good move on. Does that mean that Spielberg earned money out of yeah, Lucas's film? Made, yeah, he made a lot of money off of Spielberg's film, yeah. Uh, Lucas's film. <laughs> um, well, it's quite, I think it's quite cool. Um, yeah, it's funny. The fact that they kind of have that, have that relationship. Um, and lastly, like there was something I didn't know until I was doing research for this, um, that there was apparently there was a story um, story going around around about the time of of release when Spielberg was was doing his publicity for the film, that apparently um, NASA and the FBI had told Spielberg that they thought releasing the film was dangerous, and that NASA had actually sent Spielberg a twenty page letter. In indicating their their thoughts on the film and as as a warning about the film, really. Um. So make of that what you will. <laughs> oh. Um, I I for one do believe that there you know there there is extraterrestrial life, but I honestly doubt they visited Earth because why the fuck would you come here? Um, and if they had come here, we'd probably find out about it a bit more substantially than the information that we've had so far so anyway so yeah i don't know if you've got anything more on close encounters no i think i think you've you've covered quite a lot so yeah thanks for that cool i'm cool. moving on should we move to the the color purple released in 1985 and i have a quick synopsis a black southern woman struggles to find her identity after suffering abuse from her father and others over the course of four decades. Starring Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey in their first uh, film roles, um, Danny Glover, Lawrence Fishburne, among other 
less famous but still stellar actors, um, especially Margaret Avery, who was also nominated for an Oscar. So what did you think of The Color Purple? Okay, I'm just going to get the positive stuff out of the way um, and then go into some of my other thoughts. So I thought Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey were, were astonishingly good. I thought the cinematography from the late cinematographer Alan Duvet was gorgeous. And I thought Spielberg's confidence in blocking, because this is post um, Raiders of the Lost Ark in uh, Spielberg, um, in which I believe he became a much, much better director. Um, I think his confidence in blocking and, and creating scenes and shooting of scenes kind of really proved to have... it. it proved its worth and um, there were some really quite uh, interesting uh, and admirable moments in when you start looking at it from a directorial standpoint however and i can't believe i'm saying this with a spielberg film i mean i thought tonally the film just seemed to kind of go from this serious and dour tragic kind of opening act and then just almost ignore it but then kind of have it in the background in the back of your mind whilst there are scenes which are a bit more comedic and it's almost kind of seems as though the narrative like Spielberg isn't interested in the that part of the story that we were introduced to and it just totally it just seemed to really kind of rub me the wrong way. Um, there, you know, the Spielberg has often often been dubbed as too sentimental. Um, I think the most famous example is the ending for AI, that that is was was actually Kubrick's ending. Um, if you do the reading on that, but. I think the sentimentality of Spielberg in, in The Colour Purple, it, it, for me, it kind of did reach almost unbearable levels. Um, I feel like when those moments are done very, very well, you get the ending of E.T. When they aren't, you get Hook. Um, and I think here is kind of his attempt to kind of bring his almost like childlike wonder and, and fascination of you know the world i think it almost it just kind of it didn't fit the material um i i speak of the material i think the material is is ripe especially now for a better retelling of the story i haven't read the original book but i mean from from looking at this story i feel that there is a there is a a, a, a telling of this story that with a different director nowadays so someone like barry jenkins uh steve mcqueen or ava duvernay uh you know a black director and to tell a story that is should be told from that perspective um i feel that that's that's there for the taking um i know i can understand why spielberg got this project and for that i am kind of grateful because we got this amazing powerhouse of performance from whoopi goldberg in what I can, and which what you said was her first acting role. Yeah. Um, he shows in the his follow up to this uh, Empire of the Sun, which was uh, one of Christian Bale's first roles, 
Um, his kind of his ability to kind of use almost like there 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 are, there are themes in Empire of the Sun which which are not themes elements of how uh, a narrative is told in Empire of the Sun which are very very similar to Color of Purple but he pulls it off a lot more better than Empire of the Sun because I think he has an actual connection to that story whereas this it almost feels like a director for hire kind of job um, and I think he's he was a lot more equipped to tell that story in Empire of the Sun. Whereas I don't think it quite works in color of color of purple. I kind of I I'm catching myself because I'm almost thinking sounding sounding as though I'm you know I'm very negative on a film which on on Letterboxd I have ended up giving four stars because you know I I don't think it's a bad film. It's not it isn't a bad film. It's not even a bad Spielberg film. Um, look at the aforementioned Hook or um. <sighs> I like talk, Hook. okay. Oh, no. Stop I, dissing I, it. I have no. Okay, so I, I, I have, I have taken as enough as I could. <laughs> I have an attachment for Hook in that I watched it a lot as a kid. I did and, too. Like, it's one of those movies that I kind of have ingrained in my memory of watching a lot on VHS. But I watched it a couple of years ago as an adult and was quite taken <laughs> it's, aback. Of it's how... a kiddie film. What did you expect? <sighs> Oh. I've not seen it since I was a kid, but I really have fond memories. <laughs> and I'm okay. a, I, I like Robin Williams. Oh, and no, I like no, Dustin I, Hoffman. I, there, it was there ridiculous. Some, there is some interesting stuff in Hook. There really is. Like the whole the whole stuff at the the beginning with you know like Robin Williams and his kids, and you know there's that great scene of them walking through the house, and there's the the line where you know Hook has dragged his you know, thing across the wall. There's some really great shots. Um, um, but then there's, you know, the Lost Boys stuff, which it's not dated very well. And uh, just, oh, I, I don't know. I, it's anyway. Can I, can I badmouth Ready Player One? Is that acceptable? I've not seen it, so go ahead. Okay, right. So I'm going to badmouth Ready Player One. This is a bad Spielberg film. Okay, um, so I'm never going to watch it. <laughs> um, and I, I don't even, you know, this is like I said, this isn't even a bad Spielberg film. Which, you know, to be honest, as as much as I dislike Ready Player One, it is, it is even, it's better than some good films from bad directors. Um, so, and it, this film, it even did make me kind of well up at the end with the reunion. Um, yeah. You know, like that's kind of one of the things that annoyed me about the film is it built up this whole kind of big story about being connected to the sister, and then kind of just almost ignored it for like an hour and a half until the plot decided to kind of bring it back in. Hmm. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I mean I don't I don't know if if I would accuse it of having ignored the relationship with the sister throughout the film. It just shows how the how her life moved on, kind of thing. Because the sister's life also, you know, time doesn't sit still. Uh, but there's always a shot of of the letterbox, so you always know that yeah. she's thinking of her sister and she's waiting for that letter that never comes, or that is hidden from her. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, it's a... To kind of like finish up, really, like he made this after Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, 
um, which is a film I, I I do like a lot, despite its horrible racism. Um, and it is it is that film is is very very dark, um, especially for a blockbuster. It's one of the films that um, helped kind of create the PG thirteen um, certificate in in the states. Um, and but the criticisms of that movie was you know it was too dark for you know. It was too dark, basically, was the big criticism for that film. And it's almost as though he kind of took that and put it into a project which could it's even benefited. darker. Yeah, which was even darker, but he wasn't kind of prepared to, to put that in the film and kind of made it too sentimental and light. Mm. Um, some of the like some of the comedic stuff just kind of it just if it just didn't fit the film that we saw for the first half an hour, especially the first five minutes. That horrible opening sequence is so horrible to watch, and yep. it's like it's it it hurts to watch anything like that. You know, it the first like five like twenty minutes reminded me of freaking Twelve Years a Slave, um, which is a which is a horrible film to watch, I've, but it, it yeah, <laughs> but I mean when you talk about comedic moments which ones are you referring to i mean like so you got the the, the constant thing of of what's his name uh, harpo falling through the ceiling or um the the girl uh called squeak getting you know the sliding across the barroom floor and landing in the water and there's this a comedic fight in the in the almost in in the bar yeah there's okay. like there's the fact that danny glover's um mr you know when when his first kind of you know for quite a long time he's a quite horrible presence in the film but then like the film almost pities him at the end and he is the reason why netty is able to come over from africa because he pays the freaking money which is out of touch with the actual character that you've been telling in the film okay I, i i don't know well, let me put it this way. Do you think you would have enjoyed it more had it been a completely dark film from start to finish in which poor Seeley just goes from bad to worse, from abuse to abuse, not having a smile, not, not having a moment in her life where she could actually have fun or, you know, the whole thing at the at the bar, it was, it was, it was just her just having a bit of fun really seeing other people getting hit for change um and i don't know mister at the end he was just kind of redeeming himself in the end it was kind of he's not all bad he's just a product of his own environment in the end and he's seen the error of his way so he's just trying to pay back it's not that far-fetched i don't think okay um, but I do, I do, I really liked the the comedic moments. Uh, I liked the side um, sort of story with Sophia and Harpo. I thought that added a bit of. Imagine if you were two hours and a half of complete and utter terror and tragedy from start to finish, and having seeing Celie crying every day over un unsent uh, unreceived let- letters. It would have been even. I I don't think it would have it would have made for an compelling film or compelling narrative at all 
Do you not think that the film does suffer because of its its very sentiment? It, it, I do so, have a it's... few compl- complaints about the film, but I will get to them in a minute. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. Go for it. I, I'm are you done with? Are you done with the? Yeah. Notes? Yeah. I don't want to sound as though like I'm really, really like. No, I'm not. On the I mean. Film. I'm not. I'm not trying to make. I'm. I'm not trying to make it sound like it's one of the greatest films ever made. I don't think that at all. I do think it's a very good film, and you've raised a few interesting points. But I do think the, the it it might, in my opinion, I think it does have. It does lack something, and I think it lacks a bit of. Character, not character, a bit of insight into the female psyche. And I kind of understand the controversy when the because there was a bit of controversy when the film was made because you know it was directed by a white male, and it should have white, had a bit white, more a white a white Jewish male. You know, it's it's like as far from a black woman that you could ever find. You know. Yeah. Um. Okay. I I think it should have had a bit more like character like insight into into Celie's female sexuality which Spielberg just simply glossed over I haven't read the novel but um, apparently there was a sexual relationship between Celie and and Shark which he uh, chose not to explore and he he later regretted it but if if I think if he'd because he, he, he chose to ignore that because he thought that audiences might not understand it or accept it or relate to it by the same time he just see these she suffered a lot but you don't see her having proper proper enjoyment out of life except for like quite rarely and you see how kind she is with with everybody around her but you don't see her you know being herself much except with with shug and only like in one scene um so i think it could have been more like insightful in terms of like you know exactly how what happens to to Celie and what makes her her you know yeah um because yeah I just I think and I think there's there's a lot of a lot to be said about someone with a different point of view like you said you know he was a male Jewish man who didn't really understand you know female sexuality female um and what what not so the reason Steven Spielberg went on and did this was because his friend uh, Quincy Jones kind of urged him to do it. I think Quincy Jones was the producer of the film and he was like, I don't want anybody else but you. And yeah, I do. It kind, yeah. Of, makes, it kind of makes sense that Quincy Jones would ask Spielberg to do it because you know this was the mid eighties. Yeah, Spielberg that's what I was going to say because he was being he was riding on up, you know, high. Yeah, and Quincy Jones, you know, he was the producer. He was the producer behind Michael Jackson, wasn't he? If I'm yeah, right yeah, way. yeah. So like, yeah. you know, it it makes sense for Quincy Jones to be like, you know, I want it, the best. He, yeah, I want I want the best, and the best is Spielberg. Um, yeah, want, but yeah. You know, because feelings are not simple and it's hard to sort of render something that you don't quite understand. And I think part in the novel, there was a big part of the novel that was about Celie finally discovering her sexuality after having been raped by multiple men during her teenage 
pre-teenage years. So I think that was that could have been explored a bit more in terms of like, you know, she's just not, you know, an object. I think also, like, I don't think they would have been able to... It's the mid-1980s. I don't think they would have been able to have that in a film of this... <laughs> I know, I know, I'm, I'm not yeah. saying... Yeah, another I'm reason, the... another reason to, to, to have a remake, I suppose. Yeah, I honestly, like, you know, recently, you know, all these shows are being announced on streaming services and stuff. HBO, do another adaption of The Colour Purple, but Yeah, just... I mean, going back, if yeah. you've done Rebecca, you could do this. Rebecca didn't yeah. need to be remade. <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep, I keep <laughs> ranting about it. Um, yeah, so I really, I'm glad that you've, you've, you've liked the performances of, uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey. She, apparently Whoopi won the part of Seeley by do in, in her audition for Steven Spielberg by doing a comedy act she had developed about a stoned E.T. getting arrested for possession. That's quite funny. Um, because Whoopi was, I think, I don't know if she's, she was at SNL, but she was a comedian in New York. Yeah. Uh, that's how she got started. And, uh, yeah, she won, she was uh, nominated, uh, for Best Actress and Margaret Avery playing Shug, Oprah Winfrey, uh, playing Sophia were both nominated for Best Supporting. And this is the first film to feature three performances by black actors of any gender, which were nominated for Academy Awards, and also the first film to feature multiple Oscar-nominated performances by black women, and the first to, feel, to feature two black actors of any gender be nominated in the same category. Unfortunately, none of them won, um, although Whoopi Goldberg won for Ghost five years later, and as much as I like Ghost and her performance, I do think she deserved it for this one. And I feel it's probably one of those constellation Oscars that the Academy loves to give. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For the for the role of Shug, there were Spielberg wanted Tina Turner, who turned it down, and then Chaka Khan t- turned it down as well. And I think Diana Ross was also approached, but she didn't she wasn't interested. Yeah. So Another fun fact. Despite being a friend, a co-producer and musical director of the film, Quincy Jones became quite intrusive in Spielberg's work during this production. And despite the film being one of the very few films that was... um, uh, Despite being uh, nominated for an Oscar, it was one of those very few films that Spielberg um, didn't use John Williams for his score. So he was orchestrated by Quincy Jones. It would be interesting to see what John Williams would have made. I don't think it would have fit. What do you think? I think it would have added to my complaints of it being over-sentimental. Yeah. I'm, not saying, like, I'm not saying John Williams can't do serious scores because he can. He, he yeah, so but can. you know, you know, he, he gets the, the swelling orchestra all the time, doesn't he? Yeah, and I, I think because of the tone that Spielberg ended up going with with this film, it would have just kind of added that yeah i do think it I, I do think the score worked quite well um especially like the the bluesy scenes and the and the music uh like the diegetic music i meant to say yeah um yeah and then spielberg after this never worked with any other composer for the next 30 years 
I think he worked with Alan Silvestri for something, but I can't remember what it was. Thomas Newman worked with him on something. Bridge of Spies, that was it. Okay. So, yeah, so I do basically, think... yeah, um, John Williams had scored every single Spielberg film save one since his debut in 1974. Obviously, that one was Colour Purple with Quincy Jones. Bridge of Spies was the first one uh, which wasn't made with Williams. It was made with uh, Thomas Newman. Okay. Cool. And, uh, yeah, I do think that um, it could have probably been made a better film, but I think it's it's still quite strong and a quite an important film to 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 be, you know, an important story to, to, to be told and maybe retold. Maybe you could see a different version of, of the events. And I should probably read the novel. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I honestly like Whoopi Goldberg's performance was was very 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 good. Yeah, um, and Oprah Winfrey I mean, my... did really really well as well. Yeah, and they they were they were the first um it was first time in front of a camera for both of them. Well, in well, in, in a feature when, film. When I think of Oprah, uh, not Whoopi Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg. Um, I think of this. Uh, I think of the film called uh, Jumping Jack Flash. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Jumping Jack Flash. No. Um, it's a Penny Marshall film um, comedy from 1986. Penny Marshall being the director of um, Big, Tom Hanks film called Big. I know Penny um, Marshall. Yeah, so J- Jumping Jack Flash. Um, Whoopi Goldberg plays this bank teller called Terry Doolittle. Um, and she uses like computers to like connect around the world kind of thing and she gets caught up in in a like a espionage cold war thing going on Interesting. Um, and there's a great scene where she's um dressed up as like i think she's dressed up as diana ross and she tries to infiltrate a british embassy uh party um with a tape recorder and she gets it's it's inc- it's an amazingly comedic performance but I, she's a I very good comedian. From. Yeah, and I, I I looked it up, and that was the film that she did after the Color Purple. Um, <laughs> she's got so, range. Yeah. She's great. I like her. Yeah, um, I I recommend Jumping Jack Flash. It's it's a it's a it's a good it's a good little film. Cool. So um, I think that's kind of it for the Color Purple. What and Spielberg and Spielberg. Really? So what are we doing next week? Um. So. I mean, this was our, our penultimate episode. Um, so next week is our Christmas season finale. Um, oh. I'm trying not to sound too sad because it is like to sound as though we're not coming back. We are going to come back at some point in the new year. Um, we have kind of got a schedule of sorts. Uh, films lined up in the new year that we kind of want do want to discuss. Um, this is at the end of the podcast. We're just going to take a little bit of a break after our next episode, um, which is a Christmas episode. Um, so we'll be looking at uh, The Shop Around the Corner from 1940, directed by Ernst Lubitsch. Um, yes, I can get starring, to talk about Ernst Lubitsch. Sorry. Starring Margaret Sullivan and James Stewart, or Jimmy Stewart. It's Jimmy Stewart, isn't it? It's not, yes. I'm not just thinking of a different person. It's Jimmy Stewart. It is the um, one and only. One and only Jimmy Stewart. Um, You've and not we'll seen looking... this film. 
Sorry? You have not seen this any any part of it. I haven't, no, no. Any... I, I, I think... Okay. I've not seen any Ernst Lubitsch film, so... It's, uh... it's, it's, it's an education for me Ooh. next week. Um, and then we'll be looking at that with uh, 1983's Trading Places, uh, directed by John Landis, starring Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, and Jamie Lee Curtis. I didn't know Jamie Lee Curtis was in Trading Trading Places. Oh yes, oh yes, she is. Oh, I um, love her. You will find you you will find out why it's one of the most um, it has one of the most reroundable VHS moments in history. Is she naked? She does get naked. <laughs> she, <gets laughs> she does get um, her boobs out. So <laughs> I think she has lovely figures. So why not? No, she's she's incredible. Um, yeah, so Trading Places and Shop Around the Corner for our Christmas episode. So yeah, that's kind of our season, uh, our season finale next week. Um, I hope you join us for that. Um, in the meantime, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. And you can find me on Twitter at Nicholas Chandler and my website is superatomicvision.com. Uh, like Danny said earlier, um, follow us on Twitter at Keenotomic and our Gmail is Keenotomic at gmail.com. Um, we will be trying to kind of be a lot more active during our down period between our uh, our time off uh, over Christmas. Um, so give us a follow on Twitter on that. Um, so with that in mind, it's a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. you think I don't know nothing but singing the blues oh sister have I got news for you I'm something I hope you think that you're something too